Two Takes on the Pod. My name is Osai, and this is my podcast where I take on themes of culture and society as seen by a Nigerian and diaspora. Today, I'm talking about the prosperity paradox with my friend Sumto. She's a professional engineer based in Calgary, focused on clean energy. So why the prosperity paradox? Well, everybody has a myth of how their country could get better, especially if your country is somewhere in Africa or the Middle East, or just essentially an emerging, you know, they call them, you know, developing countries. The whole point of going through this book was to look at that with, uh, I guess, with Nigeria as a case study or uh, or really just have a general conversation about it. I, I don't want to put too much uh, emphasis on Nigeria, even though we definitely go that route in the conversation. Anyway, the whole point of this conversation really was to talk about whether or not Nigeria or people can do good things in really bad situations or bad countries. Sometimes, you know, people, all of us here in uh, diaspora are reluctant to go back home because we don't think we have the juice or the influence or the money or the finances or the expertise to really do something effective back home. Some people have done that successful, some, some not so successful. But I think the key thing here is if you were to go back and do it, how would you do it? How, what should your decision-making framework look like? What's your strategy? And can it only be based on um, industries that already successful and established or can you go there and start a new one so we dive into this book exploring some of the ideas shared by the authors clayton christensen you know renowned mit professor Efosa Jomo, who was one of his students and karen dillon who's a new york times uh best-selling author and journalist so we're looking at whether or not a developing country has a real chance and were there other countries in the past who weren't in the best case scenario what about them? How did they manage to dig themselves out of it? Was the government a key partner in it or not? Was there just one brilliant person who figured everything out and got it going for the rest of the country? How were they able to cultivate this environment where countries like South Korea uh, and Japan, who were destitute at the start of the First World War, somehow figured things out and became one of the largest uh, technology producers in the world? So. I feel like these are fair questions to answer, I feel like, or ask. I feel like uh, maybe it's time to debunk whether or not there's a real feasibility in going back to Nigeria. And if you had the opportunity or, or, or privilege to be able to go back and do something, how would you approach it? How are the people back home approaching it is a conversation I want to continuously explore. But for now, I think let's just play around with the theory, get an understanding of what that could look like from a renowned professor and um, go from there. Hopefully that kind of breaks down the episode a little bit, but we get into a lot more detail later on, so enjoy. Today, we're talking about the prosperity paradox, a book written by Peyton Christensen, Efosa, Ejomo, and Karen Dillon. And today, I have Somto Ibe, a good friend of mine, sitting down to talk to me about this. Uh, Somto, say hi to the people. 
Hello, everyone. I hope everyone's doing well. It's a pleasure to be here. Yeah, back again. Uh, I feel like this is like the second or third time you've This is my second time. On. Yeah, that's true. The first time was in person and then before the pandemic. And so this mm -hmm. almost feels brand new. It is, it is. And I think there's there's also been a few changes with you know me just uh, doing the hosting by myself. So I think it'll be different, uh, but it'll be the same. I think we have multiple conversations on multiple things. So this is just another one of our conversations, I feel. Mm -hmm. It's a little bit more scripted. <laughs> okay. Um, so before we get into the subject matter behind the book, what, what, what attracted you to the book and this subject in particular? To be honest, I typically like to read historical fiction or fiction in general. And this year I decided to do something different. You know, I read this book in January and like most people, I, you know, everyone's writes a new year resolution. They want to explore new things, try new things, getting to new habits. So one of my many new things was to try to read less fiction and more, more books of other genres. And um, I signed up for Audible and it was one of the books that was suggested to me. I don't know why, probably because I don't know why, but anyway, I, I was interested in it because Clayton Christensen is a, is a man of great repute and you know may he so rest in peace he passed away January of last year but even before he passed and so when he passed anyway he was all over sort of different news articles lots of opinion pieces about his life and the impact that he he had during his his lifetime but before that I had read one of his HBR articles called how will you measure your life I read it several years ago but I found it very informative and it was one of those articles that after reading it I took the message with me and implemented it into my life so I've never taken any of his courses but in his um when he was alive he was a professor at Harvard and he I think had a course titled disruptive innovation or something like that but he's, he's very well known for his work in the disruptive innovation space and yeah, so when I saw his name on the book, that was what attracted me to it. Now, the other two authors, to be honest, I'd never heard of them before I read the book, um, but I found out that they're also pretty impressive people. So Efusa Ojomo, he is a researcher at the Clayton Christensen Institute, and he's done a lot of work researching global prosperity, and uh, you know the relationship between poverty and innovation and then Karen Dillon she's a apparently a former editor at the Harvard Business Review and um, also a senior research editor at the Clayton Christensen Institute as well but yeah both of them I'm not very familiar with but Clayton Christensen himself I had read from him previously and that was what attracted me to the book Oh, that's yeah, that's that's super interesting. And you know, I, as I was kind of looking up for the podcast as well, I, I had read that book, um, th that article before, uh, the How Will You Measure Your Life, and just reading it yeah. again, I feel like, you know, it's into you know, I, I found it very interesting that like his commitment to, uh, management and leadership through purpose and service, and you know, I think mm -hmm. that was kind of admitted from his you know, uh, his religious beliefs, but. 
I, I found it really powerful, especially the fact that like he was super committed to finding purpose, even as a Rhodes scholar. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like most people right. who get to that point already feel like, okay, I know it. I've, I've done, you know, I'm the best. I've kind of worked my way up to this point. But being there and saying, hey, uh, I'm still going to take time to really, you know, to pray about it. And you can interchange pray with meditate, research, whatever the case may be. But that commitment, you know, during that kind of tough time, I, I thought it was really interesting. And then, you know, like yeah. I mentioned about the whole service thing, right? It's it's kind of like that whole idea of how you measure life. So I'm going to pull the quote because I think it'll help people understand, I think, what you were saying. And, you know, maybe you can add um, a little bit more if you you know, feel, right? But he talks about on the last day of uh, his class, his classes, I asked my students to turn those theoretical lenses on themselves to find cogent answers to three questions. First, how can I be sure that I'll be happy in my career? Second, how can I be sure that my relationships with my spouse and my family become an enduring source of happiness? Third, how can I be sure that I'll stay out of jail? Though the last question sounds lighthearted, it's not. Two of the 32 people in my Rhodes Scholar class spent time in jail. One of them was of Enron fame and uh, was one of his, uh, was also a classmate of his in, in um, Harvard Business School. So I feel like, you know, that idea of uh, everybody wants to, you know, you want to kind of hit these uh, benchmarks in your career, in your education. Uh, and that's obviously all well and good, but a lot of times we do that at the expense of how we treat the people around us, our family, and even some of our principles. So I, I thought that that was really interesting. And I think it stuck with me as I you know, went to this book in particular. I felt like that idea of service leads to you know, thinking long-term about impact you know, and ultimately working with a real sense of purpose, right? Like, like yeah. I feel like that kind of is implemented in a lot of the examples it uses throughout this book. So um, let's, let's get to the book. Uh, I'm curious, what makes this, you know, book special to you now that you've read it what exactly is your interpretation of prosperity the prosperity paradox so i will say that i i left the book with a, a very new perspective on on innovation so i mean innovation is not new to me it's not new to most people everybody knows the story of thomas edison and how and the light bulb and and you know mm -hmm. our, our recent example is elon musk with his tesla and even Bitcoin is another innovation that people would be familiar with. But I think this book made me think about how you can use innovation to combat poverty, which is not something that I would have normally put together. Like, I would normally not have thought that if you see a country that is sort of in dire poverty, what you need to do is pump investments into that country. That's not something that I would have, that's not a conclusion I'd have come to on my own without reading this book mm -hmm. and, and getting that perspective. So yeah, and the paradox that the book talks about really is that to have lasting poverty, uh, lasting prosperity for many countries, um, you will need to invest in innovations. That's that's the paradox. It's like this counterintuitive thing, but that's what the book is saying. Yeah, um, I think that's a great way to put it together. Uh, from what I've read, uh, it seems like you know the innovator's dilemma. He's talking to big, powerful management companies about how they lose their way, you know, and give way to you know disruptive companies, right, with fewer resources and everything. But um, this time around, he seems to be encouraging those 
would be smaller companies to be innovative to start or continue whatever they are doing. And I feel like he's he's kind of giving a language or some sort of model for identifying non-consumption, you know, and finding ways to also scale it. So it's interesting too how kind of he's evolved from one side to the other. Um, and yeah. right uh how like so they talk about understanding innovation and you, and you just said right innovation is something that we all you know we've all heard before right but there's a quote in the book where it says if we understand what type of innovation causes what to happen we can harness it for our own goals knowing these differences mm -hmm. is a crucial first step to understanding what leads to sustainable economic development so they talk about how innovation means different things to different people how do you feel about the way they describe innovations and maybe get into what some insights um, you picked up, you know, from their definition? So in, in this book, the authors categorize innovation into just three buckets, right? They talk about how, you know, innovations can be either sustaining innovations, efficiency, creating or improving innovations, and then market creating innovations. and so. Um, the authors are, are pretty much saying that if you look at any innovation that we have in our society today, they're usually one of these three. And um, so a sustaining innovation is, is the type of thing that you have when you think about your cars. You know, every few years you see a new model come out that has slightly new features. Um, you know, nothing too outrageous, but enough to keep you interested. So I drive a Toyota Corolla. And of which Toyota's story is one that the book really, you know, discusses in depth. But, you know, every several years, Toyota will come up with a slightly improved version of the Corolla. And so that might be something that might keep me interested and say, OK, you know what? There's a new model. It has one or two new features that I like. So perhaps I wouldn't switch over to Honda. Perhaps I'll just stick with my Corolla upgrade to a new trim or something like that um with the efficiency innovation you know the example that i would think about is um in a lot of these like large manufacturing companies or companies that are in the production industry they're producing some type of commodity efficiency innovations are things that you use to get more outputs um, by using less resources. So if I think about, um, you know, maybe a new type of, of machinery that can produce like two times more throughput uh, using less power or something like that, so you're spending less money. That's uh, an example, like the pressure cooker, if I think about my own everyday life is, I would say an efficiency innovation. You know, now I can go from trying to make my chicken broth or bone broth in my stove top pressure cooker, or oh, forget the pressure cooker, just the regular pot. It'll take me hours and hours of boiling, but now with my pressure cooker or my instant pot, I can do it in like an hour as opposed to like, you know, 10. And then the market creating one, which is what the book really discusses at depth is, 
uh, innovations that turn non-consumers into consumers and in the process create new markets so disruptive innovations really are market creating innovations and he gives the example in the book about our music streaming services so our apple music and spotify and how they have pretty much eliminated the uh you know the cd cd walkman uh, market and so now with the spotify it really changes the way people listen to music and podcasts and how you can do it on the go you don't need this bulky piece of equipment to do it mm-hmm. and now you can literally have you know before you'd have to buy different you know cds and different albums to listen to different artists but now with just a few clicks you have access to music from all around the world and, and with that type of innovation you know what you've done is for people who don't have ways to either make CDs or distribute their CDs now, their music can uh, be shared with people in different parts of the world and now they can earn more money. And then, you know, also created this whole industry in the tech industry with you hiring engineers and technologists to be able to do this this work. But yeah, that's the gist of uh, the different types of innovations that are discussed in the book. Yeah, no, that's great. That's a great summary. I, I thought it was interesting how, like, you know, you talk about that accessibility with the iPod and having access to music. Like, now anybody can listen to music, but any also, also anybody can essentially create music, right? They don't have this mm-hmm. huge, uh, you know, financial load to carry just to get in and actually put something out, you know, even with podcasting yeah. the same way. Um, I, one thing about efficiency of innovation, as you were just, like, describing it, I was thinking about how, you know, like Nigeria, and, and they kind of talk about it in the book, right, with the oil and gas industry, how the oil and gas industry is like a, you know, it's, a, it's one of those extract, you know, extraction industries, industries, and they're known to be, you know, huge type of efficiency, quote unquote, innovations, right? And I feel like mm-hmm. that's something that we kind of obviously are proud of as Nigerians to be able to be a producer of oil. But the fact that, the fact is, you know, because oil, you know, the oil industry is such a, a efficiency uh, innovation kind of, or, or at least focuses on efficiency innovation, we end up, the economy typically ends up losing, right? So they talk about how in the States in 1980, there were 220,000 employees in the oil and gas industry, right? And they were, they were producing 8.6 million barrels of oil. Then by 2017, uh, they are basically cut it by a third to so 146,000 people. And they're creating 9.3 million barrel of barrels. So they increase production, but did it with less mm-hmm. people, right? In Nigeria, it's even worse. Like there's <laughs> apparently they only employ 0.01 percent of uh, of the Nigerian workforce in the oil and gas industry. Like that's horrible. So it's it, we're it's generating 90 percent, but and you know, but like like really just 0.01 percent. Sometimes we see you know all the oil money and we and we are crazy about it, but. You know, when I looked, when I read this, I, I felt like it it probably ultimately does more damage than good. Yeah, and I will say that you know, different people have different motivations, right? So, to the investors on a board of an oil and gas company, if they're seeing that their profits are increasing, their revenues increasing, and they're doing it without having to pay too many people, for them, that's a win. Right. But then for the person who is passionate about 
economic development, who is passionate about, you know, reducing unemployment rates and whatnot, then they're not happy because they see, like, they're, you know, different people's motivations are different, right? And that's the thing about this book is that it talks about market creating innovations and what you need to do to lift nations out of poverty. But for an investor who that is not really their, that's not what their goal is, they wouldn't, this type of material, they would read it, find it interesting, but it wouldn't affect them. Like think about somebody like Elon Musk. Elon Musk isn't, I shouldn't say that, but he has all kinds of very interesting motivations, right? With his Tesla, when he came out with that, he was not trying to sell to the poor and, you know, increase the jobs or anything like that. Like he was thinking about very shiny things that can do great things for the economy and the environment with his electric vehicles and getting people to Mars and whatnot, whatnot. But is his, his whole idea is not lifting nations out of poverty. So I think different um, different people have different motivations, but for somebody who cares, who's, who's an entrepreneur, who cares about wanting to have economic prosperity, then this this book and what this book talks about is, is very um, important. And, you know, when you bring up the oil and gas sector, I, I mean, the energy space, so what has sustained us so far is you're right efficiency innovations with how can we be more efficient with extracting oil and whatnot and processing the oil but if you listen to the news almost every week or every other week you would hear either a company has committed to net zero emissions by 2050 a country has committed to net zero emissions by 2050 so now oil and gas is no longer a desired product or a commodity is no longer sexy. Like nobody's interested in it anymore. So now the oil and gas actually has to start thinking about market creating innovations because now they need to look for a new market for their for what for what they can do because no amount of uh, you know efficiency innovations is going to help them now. So yeah, yeah. I mean. Oh, okay. So I'll, I'll probably, I'll, I'll kind of just give you a little bit of my thoughts on it. And, you know, maybe you can, you know, you can, you can share some more, but I'll, I'll just push back a little bit. Right. Because like, I feel like with these kind of companies, like they're good. Right. And they're good in places that are prosperous. Right. Like where, where, you know, you're in a country that, that is doing well and has a high GDP per capita and everything. I think it's great. Right. But I, you know, I, I zoned in on Nigeria for that reason. I use the states and I zoned in on Nigeria because, you know, that's kind of been the challenge, right? Like we, we've been able to rest on the revenues generated by these, uh, by these companies, right? But it's not really changed much in the, in, in, in the, I guess, in the economy or for people, right? So if you're talking about the states, like efficiency innovations are not a bad thing, right? Like, you know, I think maybe I should point that out. But when you think about this idea of lifting countries out of poverty or creating more jobs, which is constantly becoming a problem, not just in, you know, back home in Nigeria, but, you know, around the world, really, even with some of the more developed nations, I think, it, you know, there, there is value in looking at those efficiency innovations and, and they're designed to do that, right? Like, it's just when you base your economy on that is where I think there's a problem. Right. I, there's there's a quote that they that they there's that they have in the book where it says uh, we can't stress this enough. Neither efficiency nor sustaining innovations are inher inherently bad for a country. In fact, they are good for our economies, but they play very different roles in fostering sustainable economic growth and job creation. 
while they keep our economies competitive and vibrant, freeing up much needed cash for future investment, neither efficiency nor sustaining innovations uh, in mature markets seed new growth and in engines. That is the result of something completely different, right? And that's what we have been basically talking about with the market, you know, market creating innovations. So I have a question. Are you disagreeing with what I, it sounds like you were disagreeing, but from what you've said, I don't think so. Yeah, no, I mean, I just, I guess what I was pushing back against was, I don't think that, uh, it, like, I don't, you know, yes, if you're, if you're, if you're crazy about, you know, development and things like that, you know, market creating innovations are the way to go. I'm essentially saying that we should, like, whether or not you're crazy about it, like, if you're an entrepreneur, even for you, especially when the company companies are like, you're trying, you can't get into efficiency innovations. Like, if you're even trying to do something new from the ground up, you can't get into efficiency creating innovations like all the Facebooks and all those uh, all the social media companies were kind of disruptive market creating innovations right so my point is like like even though those companies are well and good in terms of creating opportunity in terms of creating jobs in terms of actually even running a successful business that doesn't necessarily get eaten up or boxed out of an existing market uh, the market creating innovations are kind of key I think that was just the point I was trying to get at. Yeah, I, I, yeah, I guess what and, I was... and, and that's exactly yeah. I, I I agree. I don't think that yeah. I think we're we're on the same page. Okay. Um. Yeah. No, that's good. So, uh, something else that like uh. And I know you were interested in this that they they touch on in the book is this idea of push versus pull, right? In one of the chapters, they analyze the concept and of push versus pull strategies when it comes to development of low and um, to middle income uh, countries. Uh, the way they frame the push problem is as follows: Every year, we spend billions of dollars in an attempt to help low and middle income countries develop. These funds are primarily used to push resources into poor countries in order to help them begin their march towards prosperity. But even after pushing trillions of dollars worth of resources over the past 70 years, too many countries are still poor, with some, with some even poorer today. Why is it that development is so hard to attain and then sustain? So I was just curious on what your thoughts um, were on the push, pull versus push strategy, you know, following that like statement. And maybe, you know, you can elaborate a little bit more on the concept of the pull strategy. Yeah, I really, when I read this part of the book, I found it very enlightening because when you think about, um, so there's so many ways that you can think about this. So I read this book in January, the NSARS protest, we were just, I guess it was still fresh in my mind. And I, I guess I'll take a step back and first of all, explain the push or pull strategy. So this is, the book is basically saying that you can push resources and different types of technologies to a market, or you can allow certain industries pull the resources that they need in. And the book is saying that essentially um, to have something sustainable, you want to have a society or an industry pull the resources that it needs. You don't want to push something on it. And so 
um, they give lots of great examples in the book, but one that is personal to me that I will share is when you think about, um, I've been, I've, so this month I'm reading Bill Gates' book on how to avoid a climate crisis. And he mentioned the story of, you know, India and their toilet situation. So apparently in India for a long time, they didn't have toilets, like the proper, you know, toilets that we have here. And so the prime minister decided that he was going to, you know, build toilets, public bathrooms, different things all over India. And in his time, I think he increased it from, and I think his name is Modi, Prime Minister Modi. I don't know. Yeah. But he, he went from 40% uh, to 90%. So that's the number of people that had access to toilets. It was 40% at one point. And then and now it's about 90%. So 90% of the people in India have access to toilets, which is great, right? They have gone and like pushed these things on the people. But the problem with that is that nobody's actually using these toilets. Like they are broken down. Um, you know, like the people just, it's foreign to them. You know, nobody is maintaining the toilets. Like it's just, it's a whole mess, right? So you have all these toilets all over the country that apparently aren't in the best shape. And that's an example of like pushing something on a group without really understanding kind of what the problem is there and what you can do to make it different. Or even if you decide to push it, like it's good for you to understand full life cycle so you can see what to, to, to do differently. Now, I don't have the solution to India's toilet problem, but I know that Bill Gates is creating all kinds of new like technologies that can be used to limit the amount of maintenance that's required. I, I don't know the full story there, but that, that was one interesting thing that I thought about when I was reading this. Um, another example that is in my mind, and Fosa talked about this as well, I think he went to, I forget what country it was. He saw that they didn't have access to clean water. He's like, this is terrible. Water is life. I am going to send funds, we'll build a well and for this community. And now this community had clean water. So he did that. And then he says maybe a year later or sometime after he built the well, he got word that the well had broken down and was no longer working. And when I, I think you talked about the stats with all these NGOs that want to do good things and say, you go and build wells, you do this, you do that. But the people don't have the skills to operate it or maintain it. And so after a while, the thing breaks down and then you're back to square one again. And and so, you know, he was basically given that example of what it means to push resources into um, a society or to a community, but then the converse of that, or you know, the opposite of that is when you when you allow a society pulling the resources that it needs. And so, when I was thinking, when I was reading the book, I was thinking about Femco and what they did with the NSAR protests. So they had this protest in mm. October in um, Nigeria, and it started off as them just uh, what were they doing, coordinating protest efforts saying oh here there's a protest here so people can go there and be together then all of a sudden you hear that oh they're actually working with caterers to get food for the protesters and oh they have formed a whole coalition of lawyers who who are helping to uh, get protesters out of prison 
and oh, there's transportation now. And, you know, it was just like one week after the other, there was something new. And then even with their payment solutions, they started using Bitcoin to get donations in. So that, that that's, I wouldn't call it an industry, but if I can use the word industry, it lasted for a few months, but they essentially started doing something and then it's they pulled in all the resources that they needed, whether it was food services, transportation services, uh, you know, professional services, lawyers, like different things, right? And that's essentially what this book is trying to say with push versus pull is that you want to have an innovation that can pull in the resources that it needs. Like if you're trying to get a country out of poverty, you know, you don't want to keep sending foreign aid to that country or keep sending them money or building wells or building schools or building whatever, just building those things because you think that that's what would help the country, you know, progress. What you need is to have a market creating innovation that will pull in the resources that it needs. And by doing so, create job opportunities, create a fully functional economy, you know, yeah. So that, that that's the gist of it. Yeah, no, that's that was very well uh, explained, and I love that you used the femco as well because it really did feel like that. It just felt like they were naturally growing, and everything mm. they were kind of adding to the list continued to make sense. I think what was mm. also really important about how they approach things was transparency. I think every other day they would post how much they had received and how much was maybe dispersed or something like that. They were literally giving daily or weekly reports, something along those lines. Uh, which was something I never really just like seen from in Nigeria full stop and from a Nigerian organization in that way. You know what I mean? And like you said, they're not even an industry. They're, they literally are just, you know, they're, you know, they're, they actually work to help women in the country. So protest and organizing around protests is not even something that they do. They just took that right. on because, you know, it felt like the right thing to do. Right. But just that idea mm -hmm. of even the transparency, I thought was innovative as well. You know, because right. it, I think it, it, it made me trust in the brand and, and everything that they were doing a little bit more. So I, I, right. I want to just capture your point here because you, you said so many things and like <laughs> and, and it was really great. But the, the, there's a there's a quote in the book that kind of says. A market creating innovation then isn't simply a product or a service. It's the entire solution, right, which I think you were pointing mm -hmm. to alluding to here. The product or service coupled with a business model that is profitable to the firm. In creating this solution, organizations do what is necessary, including building infrastructures, factories, distribution, logistics, sales, and other components of their business model. These in turn begin to lay down the foundation for a region's infrastructure, right? And I, I think this is what, uh, you know, I, I think this is what the Feminist Coalition essentially did during that period. Right. Yeah. Yeah. explore uh like this idea of a culture of innovation which they talk about in the book right and i don't know if you had a chance to like to chance to mull it over but i, I want to just for people to understand like what, what does that even mean the culture of innovation right but uh there's a there's a little blurb in the book here that i think captures that feeling and then i'll talk to you a little bit about you know what your thoughts are and then we'll go from there okay okay 
In the years following the Korean War, South Korea was in tatters. According to a Harvard Emeritus professor, Ezra Vogel, in 1953, the national uh, nation's capital, Seoul, had changed hands four times, and each time there was a bitter infighting between rival parties. There was little to no electricity, and just about the only industry in the country had was textiles. In fact, at that time, North Korea was more industri industrialized than South Korea with a GDP per capita of $155 in the 1960s. South Korea was desperately poor. But when I visit South Korea these days, it's hard to reconcile it with the impoverished country I grew to love a few decades ago. Today, with a GDP per capita of more than $27,500, South Korea's aid is active in assisting many other poor countries in meeting the UN's Sustainable Development Goals. How does South Korea orchestrate such an astonishing turnaround? You know, and then they talk about companies such as Samsung, Hyundai, LG, and Kia Motors, which have been engines of economic growth in South Korea, are today recognized as some of the world's most innovative companies. So with that in mind, I'm curious how you think market-creating innovations achieve this, or at least what your perspective was from the book, or even your personal observations. Yeah, I, the South, I found the South Korea story very um, in, interesting as well, because there they talk about this country that was in the dire straits of poverty, right? They were really, really poor. And then you had these companies in, 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 in the country that were innovating and creating new products to sell to these poor people. And, you know, that's counterintuitive where it's like you want to create something, but you want to sell it to poor people. But essentially with what those companies did is in creating products that were accessible, that were affordable for the public, they turned non-consumption into consumption. So non-consumers into consumers. And these people that ordinarily would not be able to afford, whether is you look at the motorbikes or the cell phones or the cars, whatever it is that all these companies created, um, they were able to create versions that were cheaper, more affordable, and the general public could you know, afford these things and then start to use them to create value and money for themselves and with that you know those were the building blocks of south korea's success and i think that when you when i think about the culture of innovation as it relates to um, prosperity it's that you have to think about targeting non-consumption really you know if you notice that a group of people in a society are too poor to be able to buy into whatever new technologies available at the time. It's like, what can you do to make this affordable and easily accessible for people? Because that way you can have the people who are, you know, at the lowest levels of income in that country. Now you're able to empower them to produce income for themselves. You increase your nation's, um, your domestic, your, your, your GDP. And then it's just, it's almost like you do this thing, you empower the, the, lower income, poorer people in your society, and all of a sudden you don't need foreign aid anymore because people can provide for themselves. And that, you know, in thinking about innovation, that's what people should be thinking about really is that how can we innovate in a way that we're able to turn non-consumers into consumers and how can we make our products readily accessible? How can we make our products affordable as well? And how, and how can our products change the way that people live today for the better so yeah 
Yeah, no, that that's great. I mean, you know, when I think about it, like just the coach is saying, how do, how do you target those smaller communities and how do you make people's lives better? I feel like some of these companies in South Korea were literally just solving the most basic problems. Like they basically identified mm -hmm. just one little real problem for people and essentially just worked on that, specialized in that, and then constantly grew from there. Right. Um, mm -hmm. You know, and, and it's almost like all the other companies or all the other companies in, in Korea followed suit. So I want to use an example from the book. So they say, and I quote, Samsung, which began in 1938, selling dried fish, flour and veg vegetables in a depressingly poor South Korea has an interesting similar story. After the war, Samsung ventured into the sectors such as insurance, retail, textiles, and since 1969, electronics. Samsung's electronics first product was a black and white television, um, which was known for such a fuzzy picture quality that it was often thrown in free with magazine subscription. <laughs> Soon after, the company produced its first cheap electric fans, followed by low-cost air conditioners, and in 1983, launched its first personal computer. So the idea that you know Samsung started off selling just dried fish and flour is so interesting mm -hmm. to me because you would think that they started off as a you know quote unquote electronic company and solving those kind of problems right. and uh, like you know all even the Kia as a car company had similar stories so for me it's just you know how is it that you know, like one how is it that not just one but a whole slew of companies are are like essentially not didn't really follow the exact same model but it seems like the idea was we'll just figure out this one basic solution do it well and then we'll just grow from there in a way that that seemed almost contagious and i don't know if that you know like we, we've seen other examples from different places around you know the world right and when, but i don't know it, do you feel like there was something different in south korea like than everywhere else like do, do you have any thoughts on that at all and it's okay if you you know if not, nothing comes to mind i mean i i just feel like those people were desperate, right? They were desperate to do something that made a real difference. They were thinking about solving those types of problems for the poorest people. And and I think that that's really, that, that's the difference. You know, when I think about our country, Nigeria, and I mean, this is broadly speaking, the people that we have in power are not necessarily thinking about how we can make you know, solve this country's problem. It's more like, how can I increase my own, my own storage, my, you know, the amount of money in my bank account and how can I make my life better? No, no, you know, when you, even the way the president responded to the NSAC protest, you could clearly tell that they're not interested in the general public. They're just interested in themselves. And I know that, you know, we're going to talk about this later, but they the society is so corrupt that it allows them to be able to do things like that and thrive with that type of thinking and i think that in south korea you had people who were genuinely interested in building their country and in turn also creating prosperity for themselves and for the country so yeah if they, if they didn't have that thinking i don't know that they would have done the things that they did and also right. to be honest now we're 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 looking at we're looking at um, things in retrospect. It could have just been that these people were, they were comfortable with trial and error, right? So they would try these, you just talked about Samsung who went into a variety of different things. And so you had these people who were resilient and didn't give up and wanted to keep trying until um, they reached that 
aha moment or the their eureka moment so yeah no i mean okay so that that's an interesting point right and i felt like i would have agreed with you before reading the book but like you know south korea they they, they make a little blur of of it you know struggling right with its mm-hmm. uh, government where there was bitter in fighting you know there was also corruption right so the the government wasn't perfect particularly back then right so apart mm-hmm. from the fact that they weren't necessarily doing well they weren't you know the environment didn't seem ideal for that Right. So when I came into this uh, book, right, that's what I was thinking. It's like, okay, well, well, when the government is corrupt and when, you know, there isn't any real infrastructure, uh, can these things really work? Right. But what you see from this year or what, what, they, what they try, I think they ended up pointing out, they're saying, um, so South Korea is not the same country it was right after the war or even when it was in, in the early 1970s. Many things have helped South Korea grow, but the continuous commitment to innovation by South Korean firms has been critical in helping it both create and sustain its prosperity. So what the book is kind of suggesting is that uh, um, the ec- economic freedoms ignited by this growth is in prosperity are giving way for political freedoms previously unthinkable in the country. So what the book is essentially arguing is that because of these firms' innovations, right, that that essentially is what led to a better political environment or uh, what led to a better government or a sustaining government, right? And then I was just like, oh, that's South Korea. What, a, you know, what about Nigeria? Then, you know, and we don't need to get into this, to this really deeply, but uh, then uh, I see they, they had an example, Tolaram, right? I think, and I, I think we talked about it, you know, prior to, to today, but like, they essentially came to Nigeria in like, I think when Babangida was in power and somehow they've literally built, you know, power stations, you know, like they built so much infrastructure just to essentially uh, continue to effectively produce Indomie in Nigeria. So I, in my head, so I was just like, well, that's South Korea. But then you see Tolaram and you recognize that that's, you know, yes, it is, that's an Indian company. But they essentially set up base in Nigeria and essentially open up the market in Nigeria. So I was just like, okay, so I, you know, I was like, I started to kind of like question, you know, my thoughts around that, right? Um, so, I mean, one, do you have any thoughts to that at all? Yeah, I, I think I think you're right um, that, you know, despite the corruption in South Korea, you had these companies innovating. Um, and you know, as a result of their innovations, the the country was able to move out of that dire poverty strait that they were in. But I will say that what you have in those companies is that you had not just one, not just two, but multiple companies who were desperate for change, right? And they kept innovating. Now in Nigeria, we've had things like that happen, especially in the tech sector. Now, where you look at Mm-hmm. what we have with Andela and even like the recent, is it Paystack? I think it's called Paystack. Yeah, I think it's Paystack. Uh, you know, yeah. and Flutterwave and how, you know, you have these people who are doing, uh, you know, amazing things right now and disrupting the market really, but mm-hmm. you have a government who tomorrow might say, well, we're going to shut down Bitcoin transactions in the whole country because we think it's right. very suspicious. So, right. but Which yeah, no, I, I definitely, I definitely, um, I, I, I agree with you. And for people that don't know the Toleram company is Indomie company. So, yeah. Yes. Yes. Thanks. Thanks for clearing that up as well. So, you know, like now that we're on the topic, um, 
let's go into like corruption a little bit, right? Because that's one of the things they talk about when it comes to barriers to innovation, right? They, they say corruption is not a recent phenomenon. Many of today's prosperous countries were once very corrupt. In fact, some were as corrupt as many poor countries are today. But corruption is not a permanent phenomenon either, or at least it doesn't have to be. Although we know there are still individual cases of corruption in even the most admired countries in the world, and America is no exception, it is no longer a perceived, pervasive part of these cultures. So what caused that change? You might quickly list off what seems to be the obvious answers, good leadership and governance from the top, a change in moral values of a society, or the, the right institutions being put in place. But we don't believe these fundamentally change the prevalence of tolerance for corruption in a society. This is, important, this is important to recognize because so many anti-corruption programs are directed almost exclusively at governance and operate on the foundation of instilling a sense of right and wrong. If this were the key to fighting corruption, why have these uh, very worthy efforts overall had little, relatively little sustained impact on winning the war on corruption? Right. So I think that's kind of what I was alluding to. They, they talk about in this one chapter how corruption is not a problem, it's a solution. What did you take from the fact that they suggested people hire corruption? It was a, a new perspective for me. And, and I think this was Efosa's um, chapter, but he, he was talking about how um, you have corruption because you have scarcity of resources, right? Um, uh, I have a cousin who's in Nigeria now. I'm trying to get him to renew his passport. And he's telling me, he's been telling me for months now that he can't, which it just seems, I, I thought he was just being, you know, either he was telling me lies or he was just being lazy. Because I'm like, what do you mean you can't renew your, can you just go to the passport office and renew your passport? Right. And then he keeps telling me that, oh, they don't have any passport booklets. They're telling me that I either have to pay like 40,000 naira extra. This is not, fee for the passport is on top of that to bribe somebody or I have to travel so he lives in your state so I have to travel to the Abuja or, or or Lagos to get a new passport and I'm like are you serious wow. people now are collecting bribes just to give you a new passport they said passport booklets they don't have a lot in the country so the very few that they have they are hoarding them and and then it's breeding corruption and I you know I was just like that's utterly incredible but um yeah, yeah. I, I almost so don't even this, believe it you know i no, feel like, it, it, like but not, it's not true. that i don't believe him not that i don't believe him though but yeah. more that like it, it makes sense too right if you're coming to uh, ask for passports in nigeria it means you're you're you can leave the country now <laughs> you understand what mm -hmm. i mean like i feel like mm -hmm. in their head that puts you in a certain you know i guess tax brackets that says, hey, you should be able to afford this extra money. If you're going to pay for that flight to go wherever, wherever mm -hmm. you're going, you can afford to pay this extra money to essentially mm -hmm. get that passport. And I'm suspecting, mm -hmm. you know, maybe not, I guess, you know, that's, that can be mutually exclusive. Maybe they are running out of paper, which just seems very hard for me to understand, right? But yeah. ultimately that, you know, there is, a, there is a economic incentive there as well for them, knowing that this mark here can possibly afford it because if they're using it to travel out of the country. So wherever that money is coming right. from, it can also help us, you know, it, it should be enough to cover this part as well. Yeah. And, and, and that's, and I guess, so in the book, they're saying that when you see something like that, where you have corruption thriving, 
for something that is a basic service. Like, obviously, you don't want to flood the market with, um, uh, you know, an unlimited number of whatever it is you're selling because that's not good. But for certain basic things, like when you think electricity, good roads, you know, cell phones, whatever, basic things, water, those things should not be scarce in a society. And so wherever you see corruption, you that should now signal to you that there's an opportunity to do something there. And so that's what the book means by employing or seeing corruption as the solution. It's almost like, okay, you know what? For some reason, there's scarcity of passport booklets, for example. What can I do? How can I make this readily available, more affordable? And then naturally, when it is readily available and it is affordable, then there's no need for, for there to be corruption. Right, you can't have somebody holding things and telling you, okay, well now you're gonna have to pay me extra before I can give you this thing. And so that's, I think, what the book is is trying to say. That's the gist of it. There is that, you know, you have corruption because things are scarce. And if you make things readily available, then corruption will go away on its own. That's how developed countries are able to tackle um, corruption. And so. The book is saying that you don't need to wait for there to be no corruption before you go ahead and invest in your market creating innovation, that you need to do in, invest and putting resources to develop your market creating innovation in spite of the corruption, because when you have this um, innovation that creates new markets, creates new opportunities, pulls in the resources that it needs, then you're able to tackle corruption. So it's kind of like, yeah, it's against what people would normally think. You know, you're just like, okay, well, this country is corrupt. I'm going to stay far away from it. But this book is saying, no, no, no. You want to act. That's where there's an opportunity because something is scarce. And that's where you can actually solve your problem. like government's role with infrastructure right so that's another thing that they, they they pointed out in the book right and i'll again i'll just pull a quote here just to help people understand just many different things that kind of pop up right they say when you create a new market the profits from the market help pay for the infrastructure pulled into the economy which you literally just alluded to this is how many major infrastructure projects in the united states were developed by themselves, many of the infrastructures, the roads, the rails, the canals, and so on were not profitable. But once the infrastructures were pulled into an American economy that was creating a lot of value that needed to be stored or transported, the infrastructures then became viable. The infrastructure mm-hmm. uh, innovation equation has essentially not changed. Mm-hmm. So what were your thoughts on the book's perspective of the role of that the government has to play in market creating innovations? Um, and, you know, if, if, if you want to kind of explore that infrastructure a bit, you can. I just kind of wanted to use that to frame um, just the idea of the government's role. Yeah, I'm actually going to go on a tangent here because, you know, the, the, when, you, when you were reading the quote, I was like, oh, you know what? This brings to mind something that I was just working on. I just completed this program where we were tasked with, it was like a three-month 
three months. I don't know, was it three months? I guess it was almost three months. They, we were tasked with um, helping the oil and gas industry in Canada innovate into the new energy future that is cleaner and greener and, and whatnot. And um, oh, my project was hydrogen. And, and you know, with, with all the commitments to zero net zero emissions by 2040 and 2050 and so on, um, traditional fossil fuels are no longer going to be desirable and oil and gas is one of Canada's top exports right so if all of a sudden nobody wants oil and gas anymore Canada's economy is going to suffer but then these oil and gas companies they're so big and they've been doing this thing for hundreds of years you know at least 100 plus years and so it's hard for them to think about what else can we do so you have different people saying we're going to reduce our emissions by 5% via efficiency thing that you normally hear, but that's not going to work anymore because now even if you reduce your emissions by 5%, you're not going to remove the 51 billion uh, tons of greenhouse gas emissions you have every year. Mm -hmm. So my project was looking at hydrogen and we're looking at, well, you know, how can we deploy hydrogen? The problem with hydrogen today is that it requires infrastructure that is very expensive. And just like you mentioned, it's not commercially viable. You cannot ask your Suncor or your Enbridge or your whoever to today invest money to build a hydrogen like infrastructure because it's just right now it's too expensive. The, the demand isn't quite there yet. You don't have hydrogen fueling stations around. You don't have too many hydrogen cars. You know, there's one or two, but I wonder how they get refueled. And um, and so we were like scratching our heads, like, okay, you know, how can we get the market to pull in the resources that it needs for a hydrogen economy? And so, uh, you know, we came up with a solution, whatever. I think it was great, but some people disagreed. But I wouldn't, um, I I wouldn't dwell on that too much. But I would just give an an, an example of how infrastructure can be really expensive, but if you have the market that needs it, that pulls it in, and all of a sudden it's it's commercially viable and so with hydrogen before i leave this hydrogen topic <laughs> um i don't know if you know but the canadian government just announced was it the government but they voted that charging like a, a like the carbon pricing is constitutional because we have a, a climate crisis that we need to combat and so now they're going to put a tax on carbon that is essentially going to make it too expensive for the fossil fuel companies to keep operating as they have been operating so now it will be cheaper for them to be able to invest in all these green green technologies and whatnot so um that's exactly that's what the government of canada has done now is they have said we're going to now put a tax on carbon that's going to make it too expensive for you to keep doing what you're doing so now i'm forcing you to innovate into something greener and that way they're making it commercially attractive um, and so your question around what can the government do, I, I think um, creating enabling enabling environments for the private sector to do what it needs to do, I think that that's something that, that's a role that the government can play. Um, when I think, so the book talked about Singer, the sewing machine, and that one stuck with me because I have a sewing machine. It's brother, though it's not Singer. But Isaac Singer's story is, he wasn't the one that invented the sewing machine that we know today. In his time, there was already a sewing machine that was in existence, but 
it took too long for people to sew things, you know. Um, and so he redesigned the sewing machine that allow you sort of sew quicker and it was portable. And now almost everyone could have a sewing machine in their home, or even more than one if you wanted. And um, as a result of this new technology that he redesigned, you know, he had to create manufacturing facilities to make several sewing machines. Then people that make wardrobes and cabinets started popping up because all of a sudden, you know, you're making so many clothes. People now have so many clothes and now you need somewhere to store the clothes. Um, because he also um, apparently uh, developed railroads to from his factories to wherever he was, you know, shipping out his sewing machines to, and he employed people who worked on the railroads, you needed engineers, you needed like line workers, everything. And apparently in Scotland, you still have one single station that is still um, operating today. But that was a case where, you know, if I think about my country, Nigeria, if somebody has an industry and they want to create their own railroad, do you know how many uh, hurdles you have to jump through like I want to create something that will enable me you know sell my product to more people and then Nigeria will tell you okay I mean that's what happened with Gokada I think yeah that's what happened with Gokada yeah. the motorbike people they came and then they put a hefty bill on them saying you have to pay 20 million whatever I think it was Naira maybe it was dollars I don't know but you know, you just frustrate people who are trying to do things for you. You're frustrating them. So, but in, in all these other countries that we've talked about, like they had governments who, I feel, I mean, I not like I have researched this in depth, but I feel that they have governments who were supportive of these things, where you know you say I, you know, I want to pull in the resources I need, but the government is not blocking those resources from coming in. I feel like I may not have answered that question. So if I haven't, please no, let no, me no, know. no, 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 no. I think, I think way, so. you, yeah, because we we're talking about we we're talking as we we're essentially talking about the whole idea of government's role in infrastructure, right? And I think you kind of elaborated yes, yes, on. Yes. I think where you do feel like uh, the government can take some responsibility or at least help assist, and then I think you ended with you know which which is the feeling that I think I've, I've definitely felt from you as we had this conversation that like. You know, I, I mean, and to your point, right, like the government has some sort of a role, maybe doesn't have the biggest role, but, you know, in countries like Nigeria, sometimes it feels like they're actively working against it. You know, so even if your country is corrupt, even if they're not perfectly aligned and everything is not in place, right, the, you know, it's like, okay, this is good. If you're successful, you will probably just tax you and get the money that way. In Nigeria, it seems mm -hmm. like the tax will not be enough. You know, it's like they want, they basically want to control or, or completely exploit it uh, to a point where like you, it's just not viable for you to exist. Like, and like you said, we don't have all the data here, right? And we don't know how much of an analysis was done here. But, you know, to me, the reason why, I, you know, there might be some credence to this is, like I said before, is, is the whole Toleram example, the guys that make Indomie and the fact that they were able to set up in Nigeria. Now, again, those might have, that might have already been a multinational company that could afford to do business in Nigeria in a way where a starter, startup company in Nigeria serving very, very small problems for poor people might not have the same level of opportunity, right? So there might still be that disparity there as well. But it, you know, I think it's something for people to think about for sure. 
Yeah, and, and I will say that the Tolaram Indomi story, you mentioned they started in Babangida's time and they thrived through Abbasandra's period. And if you look at Nigeria, Nigeria has actually gotten worse over time. Um, mm. You know, the government we have today is is far worse than like any we've had in recent times. Do you, think it's a, and, do you really think so? Because you know, know. Babangida was just, like they were, they were Buhari, Babangida. Those guys were killing people, man. Like, no, like, no, I mean, I said in recent times, like when I look at when we crossed over from the military regime to now right. having a democratic government. Since we've had a democratic quote government, yeah, quote unquote, exactly. Since we've had a democratic government, I would say that this guy is probably one of the worst we've had. It's so funny is the fact that like Buhari was also one of the worst we had back then, you know, like when my dad was yeah, in Nigeria, like he had finished too. school, all the reason why he left was because of Buhari. <laughs> I only found out like a couple yeah. weeks ago, right? So it's, it's, it's interesting, you know, that this guy was able to get another opportunity to, to have control of the country, you know? So it, it, it's, it's, it's yeah. interesting. And honestly, that's something I've been studying and exploring and hopefully I'll get to share some of that in the podcast in the future. But yeah, that's that's a very interesting thing as well. So yeah, they, I think the government in Nigeria is quite yeah. unique. Uh, sorry, we're gonna say. I would say anything is. Uh, I'm not saying like you know the book has said you see corruption as an opportunity, and I agree with that. Mm-hmm. An opportunity to right. invest. I want to do more. What I'm I'm just saying is that when you look at Nigeria specifically, if you look at the news that has come out of these people that are trying to break into different sectors, you see that the government, like just like you mentioned, you know, they're not allowing the private sector thrive like it should. They're interfering and making things worse. Like right. instead of you to just allow, like, okay, somebody has seen an opportunity here. They have a market creating innovation. Why don't you just allow the forces of the market play out like they should and let things thrive? You're actively... Right interfering and so the indomie story yes they have done fantastic work and pulled in resources and whatnot but there are times when all these things are getting developed is different from today i just feel like the government needs to stay out of things let the market forces play like they should don't try to block things that shouldn't be blocked right right and it's one thing to be passive passively being there whether or not you're a good government or not but there's another thing to actively get in the way of real opportunities mm-hmm. for people, especially mm-hmm. when, mm-hmm. you know, especially people that probably can't afford to grease your pounds, you know? Uh, right. You know, so that being said, you know, I think we can now, like, you just, we can kind of round up the conversation here. And I, I want to kind of explore what your thoughts on the role of the diaspora by it might be, right? Like this book doesn't really provide any particular direction on this front. Right. And uh, I, and you already kind of we already have an idea of how you feel about, you know, the Nigerian government and how they affect things working. But what do you think or what do you consider as somebody in diaspora? What do you think about approaching innovation here or even back home? Oh, I would say if, if, if you're someone who is passionate about economic development and you want to see lasting change, then what I would say that this book will teach you and why you should read it is because it's going to, you know, make you look at things from a different perspective. So there's this organization I volunteer with is called Face Africa and they build wells in Liberia. And uh, I know that when I first 
sort of came across this organization I was like hmm, you know you know the whole story with wells where people go and build wells and then all of a sudden it's not working anymore after a couple right. of years or so but what these people are doing that is different though is that they are training people in the community to build the wells themselves so they come in with the the expertise some volunteers but then they train people and then you know they use it as an opportunity to empower women as well so they train women and um sort of other people in this community to be able to own and operate this well and then all of a sudden things are different because when they leave after they built the well these people have ownership of it and they're able to maintain operate it use it for the things that they actually need to use it for in their communities and then you know now the well has is able to live for longer had than when you know someone would just go and put a well and say hey this is a well use it however you want without thinking so i would say for people that have NGOs, people that want to do good work back home in nigeria here people that are outside of the country we have the ability to be able to you know pull funds together whatever it is and invest in the country i would say that people should barring everything i've said people shouldn't be so scared about investing <laughs> back home or um not, not just investing but people that have NGO shouldn't be so discouraged from going back to want to you know invest in in the society and that you should see the corruption there as an opportunity to make a change an opportunity to make something less scarce and when you're when you're deploying your funds deploy it into an innovation that can create new markets and and pool um and pool the resources that it needs in because that's really the only way that i think nigeria can move out of poverty this guy that we have in the government is not going to be there for forever so one day he we he, hope not um, yeah i know right i know but yeah so i guess that 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 is my my two cents on the matter of my chikobo <laughs> yeah your two takes uh <laughs> but um no <laughs> thank you <laughs> But uh no thank you thank you for you know your feedback I think it was great I like that you ended on a, a optimistic um notes that you know corruption is an opportunity maybe you know this business existing in Nigeria might end up paying the government more than just collecting you know funds the other way right maybe that's an argument you can make to them but hey who knows man we are here and we can't really speak to the details of what's going back home going on back home but hey Efosa Ojomo is Nigerian as well and he was actively involved in writing this book so maybe he had considered some of these things as well but um that being said you know thank you so much for taking the time out to discuss this book with me i know uh we went to a little bit more detail than uh you know someone would normally would but i'm a little crazy like that thanks for indulging me no thank you for having me on i enjoyed the conversation i this book is actually i really enjoyed it and I think I made a good decision to explore books other than fiction this year. But yeah. Absolutely. You definitely encouraged me to, you know, to read the book and I was just like, yeah, hey, I'll take, you know, a few books, you know, looks at it and everything like that. And then as I kept reading it, I was just like, oh my god, there's so many ideas here. So, you know, thanks for, you know, putting me onto the book as well and I hope people can uh get something really good out of it.
take on this in this episode? Well, I think it's clear that market creating innovation isn't just a good thing, but I think it also makes good business sense, although it's incredibly hard to do. So my big takeaway from this whole conversation is that there needs to be some sort of a culture of innovation or just building ideas, you know, that a space where your ideas can not only flourish, but can also be supported, can also be guided in the right direction. I think about Silicon Valley and how they can basically build crazy wild things that even sometimes the investors don't know or understand, but are happy to give money because there is a, you know, a good background, a good basis. Um, I feel like in South Korea, they were able to flourish because it was that same idea floating in the air where a bunch of different companies are trying to solve very little specific problems that gives all of them a chance to grow. And as a result, they cultivate a certain type of, you know, talent that now they export all over the world. So when I think about that, when I think about this idea of market creating innovation and the fact that I know it's not going to be easy at all for most people, um, I think a culture innovation then comes into play. I feel like, you know, when we have groups of people who are trying to think outside the box or push the boundaries, um, I think that's where we, our best shot is, you know. Um, I don't have the answers, obviously. First one to say that. Um, but, you know, I know that's what I'm going to be looking for. I know that's, you know, what I'll keep in the back of my mind. And uh, I'm curious, what would you do? You can share your feedback by writing to twotakesonapod at gmail.com. Too much stress? No problem. Follow me on social media at twotakesonapod on Twitter and Instagram. I'm looking forward to hearing what you have to say about the show, about the topics, about something you feel like needs to be highlighted. Make sure to subscribe so you don't miss the next episode. And you can find us wherever you find podcasts. While you're out there, show some love and give this five stars too. This has been Two Takes on a Pod. Thank you for listening. Peace.